but we are going to continue our sermon series through the book of Philippians this morning. Remember, we've titled this series, um, Joy No Matter What. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 18b, so the second half of verse 18 through verse 26. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, remember, as Pete mentioned last week, that this is actually the second section, right? It's the second half of Paul's kind of explanation of his current circumstances, right? He's writing this letter to his friends, and he wants to let them know what's going on with him. And, and Pete actually had us read this whole section last week. Um, but we remember we saw in part one that he was finding actually joy in his current circumstances, not because of the fact that he was in prison, not because things were going particularly well for him while he was on house arrest in Rome, but because God was continuing to work despite of that in advancing the gospel. And this was done, as we remember, with the imperial guard who were with him, knowing and taking the gospel to Caesar's household. It was done through many who were feeling empowered by Paul's faithfulness to preach in Rome. And it was done as those who were trying to even slander Paul and to say, you know, Paul's not that really great of a preacher. It was done as they were continuing to even preach the gospel of grace. And Paul was like, I'm not even worried about what they say about me. I only care about what they say about God and what they say about Jesus and that they're advancing the gospel. So even though he finds himself in house arrest in Rome, he can't even leave about like, you know, he's stuck a couple feet from a guard at all times. He's just overflowing with joy because the gospel has continued to advance in mighty ways. Well, in this morning's text, He's going to continue explaining his true joy and contentment that came from God and not from his own circumstances. So just like we saw in Paul's kingdom perspective last week, we will continue to see this picture this week. And we're actually going to kind of see the big picture of how he's able to have this perspective. As we see specifically this morning, that true joy comes from trusting Jesus in life and death. Right, we're going to see that throughout this passage. So let's open up our text this morning. Let's read together from chapter 1 of Philippians, starting in the second half of verse 18 and reading through verse 26. Philippians 1, 18 through 26. Paul continues from last week. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. 
Lord, this is a good word, and we're thankful for it this morning. We're thankful for Paul's heart. And we ask, Lord, that it would be an example of what looking like a true, committed, holistic disciple looks like, one who has a kingdom perspective. Lord, may our hearts and minds be open to your word this morning. May we be transformed by this, and may we come to know you deeper and to love you more this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Paul's explanation of the true joy he finds in trusting Jesus in life and death in this passage, it actually forms a sort of a sort of hourglass in this text. So we'll see this as his first point kind of makes the second and most central point and then branches back out to give another example of that main point, which finds itself most clearly in that memorable verse in verse 21. But to begin making this point, the first thing we see in this passage in verses 18 through 20 is that joy comes from trusting our sovereign God, not in our circumstances. Right? We know this deep down, but Paul shows us this as he continues this point from last week and says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You know, in almost summary fashion from what we read last week, he continues that thought by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. He's already rejoiced in God's work currently, but now he says, I will continue to rejoice in God's sovereignty specifically as he thinks about the outcome of his trial. Specifically, he shows his trust in God's sovereignty in two ways here. He says, first, he knows that their prayers will be answered as he trusts that he will be free to preach the gospel freely again. But second, part of that answer of prayer was the presence of the spirit of Jesus Christ, which gave him peace in all of these things. You know, this is the peace that surpasses understanding that he will talk about in chapter four. And it comes from having the presence of Jesus Christ through the spirit with him. So in other words, he trusts the sovereignty of God who is faithful in hearing the prayers of his people and comforting him with the spirit of peace, knowing that he will be delivered from his current circumstances to continue to preach the gospel. I mean, I think it's clear for us to see here. This is, this is not an anxious man. This is not a fearful man. This is a confidence disciple of Jesus Christ. Even in the face of trial, even in the face of potential death, he knows that God is in control and will use him for his glory no matter what. And what's interesting here is that the words he says in verse 19 are actually a, recite, a recitation of Job's words in Job 13, 15, and 16, who says there, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face, for this will be for my salvation or my deliverance. You know, in repeating Job's words, Paul is kind of putting himself in that same type of suffering, but not just that, in that same type of hope that Job experienced, who said, I know what has happened to me is from God, but it will also turn out for my deliverance and for his glory. Again, this sovereignty and goodness of God gives Paul hope and joy that he can continue to trust in him no matter what he goes through. And this is what he's saying when he gets to verse 20 and he continues 
It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be put to shame, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, this isn't Paul being presumptuous upon God saying, Lord, I know that I'm going to live because my friends are praying for that end. But this is, this is Paul saying, I will not be ashamed for standing up for my faith, no matter what the outcome of this trial. He's confident in God, but also is more confident in the fact that he will not be put to shame for standing true to his faith, no matter what happens to him. Now, now shame in the Bible is a little bit different than how we picture shame in our life today. Shame in the Bible is primarily talking about disappointment, right? We see this in Romans 1.16 when Paul says that he's not ashamed or, or disappointed by the gospel because it has the power to save both Jew and Gentile, right? His point is that he's not disappointed in the power of the gospel. It's the, it, it's the thing that has the power to save everyone in this world. We see this also in, in 2 Timothy 1.12 when Paul says, I am not ashamed or disappointed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Right? His point here is in those passages is that whether he lives or dies, trusting Jesus with his whole life has not brought him the shame of disappointment. It has all been worth it. This is primarily as he goes on because he has full courage that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. You see, in his life, Christ would be glorified as he continued to stand firm in the truth of the gospel as he defended it even now in front of the Roman, Roman tribunal. But in his death, Christ would also be glorified as the anticipation of those future promises of Jesus, as well as the witness of his martyrdom, would keep him from being put to shame. For Paul, everything, even trials, is about the magnification of Christ. And because of that, he knows that no matter what he goes through, God will be glorified if he remains faithful to that task, that task that has not brought him any type of shame or disappointment. And this brings him great joy. They do not need to worry about him since he's not even worried about himself as he trusts in the sovereign God who works all things for good, whether through his continued life or his potential death. And this is what adds fuel to his statement in verse 21. As he trusts in the sovereign God who has been faithful to him, even up to this point, he zeroes in on this second point and the most important point that he's trying to make here in this passage. And that's specifically that, like I said, is that true joy comes from trusting in Jesus in life and death. Right. It's, it's having this kingdom perspective no matter what. That's why he can say in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This kingdom perspective that Pete talked about last week allows Paul to see that God continues to be sovereign and good whether Paul lives or dies. 
it allows him to see that the gospel ministry will continue to go out with great effect whether he lives or dies. And as they try to encourage him that everything is going to be all right, that he will not be put to death, he actually instead encourages them and us by saying that everything's going to be all right even if he has to die. Right? He's ready to be die on behalf of the gospel. And while he waits for that possibility, he wants them to know that his whole being is consumed with knowing and glorifying Jesus Christ. Actually, the original Greek here literally says to live Christ, to die gain. You know, for Paul, life and Christ were one. They were so intricately linked that he could say to live Christ and for him to die was gained so similarly, so intricately linked that for him, they were one and the same as well. And if we take this verse together with what he writes in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we combine this passage with that passage, we see this powerful statement that his union with Christ allows for the magnification of Christ in both his life and his death. To put it in our own context, Paul is saying that if we believe that to live is Christ and therefore our lives are completely and utterly for his glory, then we will naturally believe that to die is gain. But if we live for anyone or anything else in this world other than Christ, death will look like a great loss and will remain the final enemy, as he calls it in 1 Corinthians 15. And as he continues, he explains this, this point a little bit further. He says in verses 22 through 24, if I am to live Sorry, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, for my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. See, Paul's wrestling with whether or not he should live or die, because he knows that if he is able to live, it means that he will continue to have fruitful labor for the kingdom. But he also knows that if he dies, he will have the greater gain of being with Christ. So he says that he's torn between these two choices, likening it to being on this narrow path with two rock walls squeezing in on him, making him hard pressed. It's like he knows he can only go straight ahead to what God has planned for him. But this, these walls of living or dying are kind of pushing him in. And he says, I don't know which one is the one that I will come out with on the other side. And before I even go on, I just want to stop and say, like, this statement in verse 21, and as he explains it here, is just so completely and utterly countercultural and supernatural, right? This is a completely otherworldly type of statement here. And that's why this, this verse is so memorable. That's why verse 21 is so, um, is so provocative and, and so transformative when we understand it, because Let's be fair, if any one of us right now were put 
with the options between life and death, I don't know if we would have as big of a struggle between making a choice there as Paul is here. You know, Paul is, is showing us that true joy and contentment comes from living for Christ so deeply that death is not a loss, that death is not an enemy, but it becomes the far better option, right? Far better can actually be translated very much better. It's the highest superlative in Greek. His point is that for Paul, there wasn't a choice. This wasn't a choice between two good things, right? It wasn't, well, it'd be good for me to live. I could do more work. Or it would be good for me to die because I would be with Christ. He's saying that I don't know whether I should stay and do the good work of continuing to do gospel ministry or if I should die and go to the best thing, right? The far better option, the, the, the thing that he knows is the greatest gain, which is to be with Christ. You know, because for one whose citizenship is in heaven, as he will show us in chapter 3 of Philippians, he knows that it is much better to go home to be with his Lord and Savior than to remain in the broken, sinful world that he finds himself imprisoned in. But let me make one thing clear. This isn't a desire for Paul to escape his present sufferings. This is a desire for him to be in full communion with Jesus receiving the full benefits and reward of what it means to follow Christ. As such, this, this mindset, this, you know, this phrase that he's throwing out to his friends would be a great comfort to them, for not only would Paul's potential death not be a defeat for him, would not be a defeat for the gospel, but that their own suffering, their own potential deaths for the gospel would not be meaningless but would be for the ultimate witness of participating in the suffering of Christ Jesus. And because of all these things, this is a decision that he is struggling to make. Again, it is difficult because the kingdom perspective that he has allows him to rejoice in God's work through both his life and his death, since both of them would be of benefit and glory. But as we get to verse 24, he zooms back out from this main point to show us another example of how trusting Jesus in life and death produces true joy. Because finally, we see the third thing in this passage, in these final verses, namely that joy is expressed and passed on in a selfless lifestyle. If you remember from two weeks ago, this is similar to the point I made then when I said that faithfulness seen causes joy felt. Because as he wrestles back and forth with whether he would rather live and continue his fruitful labor for the gospel or to depart and receive the full reward of being eternally with Christ, he says in verses 24 through 26, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And this is where we really start to see the true heart of Paul come out in this letter. 
Because although it would be far better for him to depart and be with Christ in death, it is more necessary for them that he remains. So his desire to depart and be with Christ was not this escapist attitude of wanting to run away from the evils of this world. And because of that, he understands that until God calls him home, he is not to be so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good, as the famous saying goes. Right? This wasn't Paul saying, I want to be with Jesus so bad that I'm going to ignore everything on earth. Instead, he shows us this good mentality as Christians that we are supposed to be committed to. This idea of we're not supposed to be escapists who are holding on tightly until we can get out of this place, right? This world is so broken. It's so dark. It's so sinful that we are just thankful that we can go away. No, Paul is saying that that's not the mindset of a true disciple, that we look to joy for what that means. But while we are here, we should be seeking the welfare of those around us for the advancement of God's kingdom and for his glory while the Lord keeps us here on this earth. Because for Paul, what is necessary for the good of those around him always trumps what is very much better for himself. And that's the heart of this saint. That's the heart of this disciple of Jesus. What is necessary for the good of others always trumps what is far better for himself. When living is Christ, it naturally leads to the way of self-giving, self-humbling, and self-sacrifice. But the irony here is that in in imitating Christ's self-sacrifice, which came through death on a cross, Paul would do this through continuing to live and ministering to the Philippians. And this is what it means to live lives that are crucified with Christ, right? We are now crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. This is what it means to live is Christ. It means that although we look forward and we don't fear death, we know that while we are here, God has tasked us with not only the responsibility, but the ability and the power to go out into this world and to serve him with our whole lives, with every ounce of our being, so that we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says here that he is certain that he will stay for their sake to aid and see their progress in the faith and for their continued joy. I love it. The the picture that he's painting here of progress is of one who is a trailblazer who would go before an army so that they could advance. Right. Imagine an army is is heading forth and they come to a a thicket of, of trees and brush and bramble. And this, and Paul is saying, I want to remain with you so that I can go before you, so that I can show you what it looks like to, to cut a new path and go in victory, right? As one commentator puts it here, he says, Paul wanted to cut a new path for the Philippians to follow in victory by showing them that their increasing of their faith would result in the increasing of their joy. Right? Paul is showing his friends in Philippi who were suffering for the sake of the gospel 
that this was normal and that he had already led the way into this gospel ministry of suffering and persecution and that it only leads to joy and victory if they have this kingdom perspective. They likewise have nothing to fear since they would follow along in the joy and victory that he has already cut before them, leading them to the true joy and victory found in Christ and in his promises. This is why he concludes this section by saying that the result of his continued life for their progress and joy would begin with his returning to them, giving them ample cause to glory or boast in Christ Jesus. See, boasting here is not this prideful attitude of holding oneself higher than another, but it's to glorify God. It's to, to glorify his work and to exult and rejoice in him. Right? This is the joy of the Lord. This is, as, as I just read in Bible study last, last Wednesday, this is what leads David to take off his kingly robes and to put on this, this thin like really revealing ephod of the priest and the dance in the streets before the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem. This is the joy of the Lord. This is, it's boasting in Jesus, right? That this is the most important thing, that this is the thing that matters, right? Jesus, uh, David says, I will be even more undignified than this for the sake of God's glory. His point is that he doesn't care what people think about him. He doesn't care what might happen to him, just like Paul is showing us here. What's important to him is that his joy comes from knowing and magnifying the name of Jesus Christ, both in his life and in his eventual death. In other words, they would experience joy as Paul came to them again for fruitful labor, but that joy would not be a result of anything that Paul is necessarily doing, but would be a result of what Christ was doing, and particularly what Christ was doing in Paul's life. They would see Christ's faithfulness in Paul's life, and they would glorify God because of it, joining in that same mission that Paul was involved in, while continuing to grow in joy as the evidence of the progress of their faith. In these final few verses, Paul makes it clear that their growth in the faith was of much more importance than his own rewards in the faith, and that he was confident that God would allow him to continue to provide fruitful labor for them instead of departing to be with Jesus in glory. And on top of that, this would be a joy for him. I mean, again, imagine you're, you're given a million dollars or you're given the opportunity to give away $50. What he's saying here is, I'm going to, I'm going to not take that million dollars. Instead, I'm going to give away $50, and that's going to be a great joy for me, and that's going to be a great joy for you. Right? He knows that as he selflessly served them, resulting in their great joy and what Christ is doing for them, that it would continue to bring him great joy. And this is why, you know, I say in this passage here, this third point, that living sacrificially brings joy, right? That true joy is produced in this, self, uh, this self-serving, this self-sacrificial lifestyle. Because Paul's reiterating what we saw two weeks ago, that faithfulness seen causes joy felt. 
But in that passage, in his introduction, you remember he was receiving great joy because of their faithfulness to God. Here he says, you will actually receive great joy in seeing Christ's faithfulness through me. So again, there's this reminder that as Paul sacrificially serves them by stalling his heavenly reward for their sake, his joy of being able to see their progress in the faith would rub off on them as they boasted and rejoiced in the continued work of Christ in Paul's and in their lives. Now, I've kind of said it, but I really feel like this is one of the most provocative sections of all of Paul's writings because of how countercultural it really is. I mean, you're not going to read anywhere else in this world or see anywhere else in this world this type of self-sacrificial lifestyle that says, I am willing to give up this great reward for the sake of serving someone else. This kingdom perspective that permeates every aspect of Paul's life leads to a life that does not fear death, but also a life that was passionately for the growth and well-being of others over himself. And this is why, as I've been saying throughout this passage, that Paul is showing us here that true joy comes from trusting Jesus in life and death. This is what Paul means when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He understands that to be a disciple of Jesus comes down to being so united with and committed to Christ that the only way to find true joy and contentment is to live out that lifestyle in every aspect of his life. He is calling us as Christians to have the gospel be the thing that drives us out into our daily lives. Right? As such, we can spend our days looking around at a broken world saying, how can I bring the peace, the love, the hope, the forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus to those around me? Because this is the lifestyle, as we'll see in the next few weeks, that puts others' interests above our own, striving together for the sake of the gospel. This is the type of kingdom perspective, as we'll see as we get to chapter 2, that is that same mindset that Christ Jesus has as he gave up everything for our sake in going to the cross. I mean, think about it. Paul could have been released from prison. And then just decided to kind of sit quietly and live out the rest of his days, free from any type of political or legal ramifications. But what's amazing here is that he was so committed to the gospel that he knew that the second he was released from being imprisoned for sharing the gospel, that he needed to go back to Philippi to continue to share the gospel. I mean, this this is the only type of mindset. This is... This is true gospel confidence that shows that he believes so much in what he believes that he can say that while life is to be fully committed to Christ, even death would be a great gain. That no matter what he does, no matter where he goes, as long as he's committed to Christ, he can rejoice and boast in the Lord because God will use him for his glory, no matter what the outcome. I mean, remember, this is the man who who says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul would never be deterred 
from sharing the gospel, no matter what his circumstances, because of this kingdom perspective that permeated every aspect of his life. I mean, can you imagine if the church of Jesus Christ lived with this type of gospel passion and confidence in every area of their life? I honestly feel like if we had this kingdom perspective every moment of every day, that nothing would be impossible for us, as Christ says. Not only that, but these seasons of depression and anxiety that we so often face would be replaced with praise and rejoicing as we saw that the kingdom of hell would break down before our eyes, that sinners were being set free from their oppression and slavery. Because we so often get fixated on trying to find joy in our present circumstances that we forget that God has always and will always use whatever circumstances we're in to bring glory to himself. And if that's the thing that we are focused on, if that's our goal and our mission in life, even when things are going so wrong in our lives, even when anxiety is taking over, even when depression sets in, even when death knocks at our door, we will be able to find this joy that passes all understanding. This joy that is so countercultural that turns the heads of onlookers to say, how can you be peaceful in this time? How can you find joy in this time? And although there's many accounts of saints who have lived with this type of gospel joy and confidence as they moved mountains for the kingdom, instead of rehearsing what you probably have already read in some of those accounts, I want to leave us this morning with one final soul-searching question. And that, as you can see in that outline, is this. Can you confidently say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Because let me be clear, you will not experience the true joy and peace of the gospel if this kingdom perspective is not the thing that drives you out into your daily life. Until you can wake up every morning and say, my goal today is to glorify Jesus Christ in being a witness for the kingdom, you will have the circumstances of your life dictate whether or not you find joy. For when we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain, we will find that every moment of our lives has inherent meaning and purpose. When we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain, we will find that every trial will not overwhelm us, but will drive us closer to our Savior in praise and in thanksgiving. And when we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain, we will find that not even death itself can put an end to our joy and our goal of bringing glory and honor to Christ. So remember this morning that true joy comes from trusting Jesus in life and death. When we trust Jesus with this kingdom perspective, the joy that surpasses understanding will overwhelm our lives and drive us out with gospel passion and confidence. Let's pray. Lord, fill your church with the joy that comes from serving you with our whole lives. 
Lord, so much of our lives seems to be dictated by present circumstances, by what happens to us. But Lord, we want to, like Paul, be able to find joy no matter what, to find peace that surpasses all understanding, to find hope that is like no other that is offered in this world. And we know that that only comes as we cling to the foot of the cross, as we cling to you daily, as we wake up and say, Lord, how can I worship you? How can I serve you? How can I glorify you today? Because when we live for Christ, we will see that everything we do is producing this joy that surpasses anything that we could experience here. And when we live like that, when we're faced with death, we will be able to say, Lord, I am so thankful that you have used me. I am so ready to go home. I am so ready to be back to where my citizenship lies in heaven as a new creation made new in the spirit. And in having a perspective in which death does not, is, does not make us afraid and in which life motivates us to live for you, God, we will experience joy like no other. So Lord, may that be how we live. Help us in that. Give us more of your spirit in order to live like that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.